Chapter Four of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borum. Chapter Four George Whitfield's Text. One. George Whitfield was the first man who treated Great Britain and America as if they both belonged to him. He passed from the one to the other as though they were a pair of rural villages, and he was the minister in charge of the parish. George Whitfield took a couple of continents under his wing, and the wing proved capacious enough for the task. In days when the trip was a serious undertaking, he crossed the Atlantic thirteen times. But of all his voyages, this was the worst. Day after day, ploughing her way through the terrific seas, the good ship had shuddered in the grip of the gale. The sailors were at their wits' end. The sails were torn to ribbons, and the tackling was all strained and broken. George Whitfield, who, wrapped in a buffalo hide, sleeps in the most protected part of the vessel, has been drenched through and through twice in one night. The ship has been so buffeted and beaten that nearly three months have passed before the Irish coast is sighted. Rations have been reduced to famine fare. The gravest anxiety marks every countenance. Today, however, there is a lull in the storm. The seas have moderated and the sun is shining. In the afternoon, Mr. Whitfield assembles the passengers and crew and conducts a service on the deck. Have a good look at him. He is twenty-five, tall, graceful, and well-proportioned, of fair complexion and bright blue eyes. There is a singular cast in one of those eyes which, though not unsightly, has the curious effect of making each hearer feel that the preacher is looking directly at him. There is something extraordinarily commanding about him. It was said that, by raising his hand, he could reduce an unruly babble of twenty thousand people to instant silence. His voice, strong and rich and musical, was so perfectly modulated and controlled that his audiences were charmed into rapt attention. It had phenomenal carrying power. Whilst Whitfield was preaching in the open air one day, Benjamin Franklin, who was present, made a singular computation. He walked backwards until he reached a point at which he could no longer hear every word distinctly. He marked the spot and afterwards measured the distance. As a result, he calculated that Mr. Whitfield could command an audience of 30,000 people without straining his voice in the least. Today, however, instead of 30,000 people, he has barely 30. Standing on the hatchway, with a coil of rope at his feet, he announces his text, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The passengers lounging about the deck, and the sailors leaning against the bulwarks listen breathlessly as, for half an hour, an earnest and eloquent man pours out his heart in personal testimony, powerful exposition, and passionate entreaty. Every man, he cries, who has even the least concern for the salvation of his precious and immortal soul, should never cease watching and praying and striving till he find a real, inward, saving change wrought in his heart and thereby doth know of a truth that he has been born again. Verily, verily I say unto thee, except a man be born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is George Whitfield's text in Mid-Atlantic, because it is George Whitfield's text on both sides of the Atlantic. In season and out of season, in public and in private, he ceaselessly proclaimed that message. He felt that he was sent into the world to call the attention of men to that one mandatory word. He is known to have preached more than three hundred times from this memorable and striking passage. And nobody who has read the story of his spiritual travail will marvel for a moment at his having done so. 2. For it was that great text about the new birth that had thrown open to him the gates of the kingdom of God. He was only a schoolboy when it first dawned upon him that, between him and that kingdom, a frightful chasm yawned. I got acquainted, he says, with such a set of debauched, abandoned, atheistical youths, that if God, by his free grace, had not delivered me out of their hands, I should long ago have sat in the scorner's chair. I took pleasure in their lewd conversation. My thoughts of religion became more and more like theirs. I affected to look rakish, and was in a fair way of being as infamous as the worst of them. Then came the sudden arrest, the quick realization of his folly, and the vision of the hideous blackness of his own heart. But how to cure it, that was the problem. He resolved to change, at any rate, his outward bearing. As once I affected to look more rakish, so now I strove to appear more grave than I really was. This, however, was cold comfort. It was like painting rotten wood. He was conscious all the time of the concealed corruption. He tried another course. He denied himself every luxury. He wore ragged and even dirty clothes, ate no foods but those that were repugnant to him, fasted altogether twice a week, gave his money to the poor, and spent whole nights in prayer lying prostrate on the cold stones or the wet grass. But it was all of no avail. He felt that there was something radically wrong in the very heart of him, something that all his penance and self-degradation could not change. Then came the angel of deliverance, and the angel of deliverance bore three golden keys. One was a man, one was a book, one was a text. The man was Charles Wesley, the minstrel of Methodism. George Whitfield and Charles Wesley were by this time fellow students at Oxford. Wesley noticed the tall, grave youth, always walking alone, apparently in deep thought, and he felt strangely drawn to him. They met. Forty years afterwards, Charles Wesley commemorated that meeting. Can I the memorable day forget when first we by divine appointment met, where undisturbed the thoughtful student roves in search of truth through academic groves, a modest pensive youth who mused alone, industrious the beaten path to shun, an Israelite without disguise or art. I saw, I loved, and clasped him to my heart. A stranger as my bosom friend caressed, and unawares received an angel guest. But if Whitfield was an angel guest to Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley was certainly no less to Whitfield. Whitfield often referred to him as my never-to-be-forgotten friend. In those days, Charles Wesley also was groping after the light. He could not therefore solve his new friend's aching problem, but he could lend him the books that he himself was reading, and he did. The book that Charles Wesley lent George Whitfield 
was Henry Scougal's The Life of God in the Soul of Man. He read it with amazement and delight. It told him exactly what he longed to know. He learned for the first time that true religion is the union of the soul with God. It is Christ formed within us. When I read this, he says, a ray of divine light instantaneously darted in upon my soul, and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. He is a young man of twenty-one. After having undergone innumerable buffetings by day and night, God was pleased at length, he says, to remove my heavy load and to enable me by a living faith to lay hold on his dear son. And oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, was I filled when the weight of sin left me and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. His first act in his ecstasy was to write to all his relatives. I have found, he tells them, that there is such a thing as the new birth. I must be a new creature. There is such a thing as the new birth. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It was thus that the man introduced the book, and the book introduced the text, and the text led George Whitfield into the kingdom of God. I know the exact place, he says. It may perhaps be superstitious, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to the spot where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me a new birth. 3. A new creature, the new birth. Except a man be born again. What does it mean? It means, if it means anything, that the miracle of creation's morning may be reenacted. A man may be made all over again. He may be changed root and branch. The very fiber and fabric of his manhood may be transfigured. You ask me to explain this new creation. I will do so when you have explained the earlier one. You ask me to explain this second birth. I merely remind you that the first birth, the physical and intellectual one, is involved in inscrutable mystery. I cannot explain the creation of the universe, but for all that, here is the universe. I cannot explain the mystery of birth, but what does it matter? Here is the child. I cannot explain the truth that darting like a flash of lightning into the soul of that Oxford student transforms his whole life. But explained or unexplained, here is George Whitfield. O oh Lord, muttered Alexander Pope one day, make me a better man. It would be easier, replied his spiritually enlightened page, to make you a new man. And in that distinction lies the whole doctrine that so startled and captivated and dominated the life of George Whitfield. 4. With this text burned into his very soul, and inscribed indelibly upon his mind, George Whitfield mapped out the program of his life. He set himself to a stupendous and worldwide campaign. He determined that he would carry that one message everywhere. He was forever on the march, and he was forever and ever proclaiming, with the most affecting fervor and persuasion, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. David Garrick used to say that he would gladly give a hundred guineas to be able to pronounce the word, oh, as movingly as Whitfield did. 
The secret was that all Whitfield's soul was in that yearning monosyllable. He was hungry for the salvation of men. He remembered his own bewilderment, his own frantic struggle for freedom, and he longed to shed upon others the light that had broken so startlingly and joyously upon him. He could scarcely speak of anything else. In preaching a funeral sermon, soon after Mr. Whitfield's death, the Reverend Joseph Smith, V.D.M., said that there was scarcely one sermon in which Mr. Whitfield did not insist upon the necessity of the new birth. With passionate vehemency and earnest repetition, he cried again and again, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He found that the hearts of men were waiting wistfully for that message. He tells us, for example, of one of his earliest efforts. It was at Kingswood. He was refused permission to preach in the church unless he would undertake to say nothing about the new birth. But that was the very subject on which he was determined to speak. He therefore resorted to the open fields, and the miners in their thousands thronged around him. I preached, he says, on the Saviour's words to Nicodemus, Ye must be born again, and the people heard me gladly. Having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were delighted to hear of one who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The first discovery of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by the tears which streamed plentifully down their black cheeks as they came fresh from the coal-pit. Hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep convictions, which happily ended in sound and thorough conversion. The change was visible to all. The news spread through the country that a cultured and eloquent preacher was declaring to great multitudes on village greens, at street corners, at fairs and fates, at festivals, on bowling greens and in open fields that men might be remade, regenerated, born again. The inhabitants of towns that he had not yet visited sent to him, begging him to come. When, for example, he was approaching Bristol, multitudes went out on foot to meet him, and the people saluted and blessed him as he passed along the street. The churches were so crowded that it was with difficulty that he could obtain access to the pulpit. Some hung upon the rails of the organ-loft, others climbed upon the leads of the church. At every crack and crevice, ears were straining to catch the message. When he preached his last sermon in the town, and told the people that they would see his face no more, they all, high and low, young and old, burst into tears. Multitudes followed him to his rooms weeping. The next day he was employed from daylight till midnight in counseling eager inquirers, and in the end he left the town secretly at dead of night in order to evade the throng that would have insisted on attending him. 5. George Whitfield made the doctrine of the new birth his universal message, because he found that it met a universal need. I catch glimpses of him under many skies and under strangely varied conditions, but he is always proclaiming the same truth and always with the same result. Here he is, seated with an Indian in a canoe on one of the great American rivers. He is visiting the various encampments of the Delawares. He loves to go from tribe to tribe and from wigwam to wigwam telling the red men, by the aid of an interpreter, that a man of any kind and any color may be born again. For hundreds of miles he trudges his way through the solitudes of the great American forests, that he may deliver to Indians and backwoodsmen 
the message that is burning in his soul. Here he is, preaching to the black men of Bermudas. Except, he cries, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Attention, he tells us, sat on every face. I believe there were few dry eyes. Even the Negroes who could not get into the building, and who listened from without, wept plentifully. Surely a great work is begun here. Here he is in Scotland. He is visiting Cambuslang, and there is no building large enough to accommodate any considerable fraction of the crowds that throng to hear him. He therefore preaches in the glen. The grassy level by the burnside, and the steep bray which rises from it in the form of an amphitheatre, offer a noble and impressive auditorium. He dwelt mostly on regeneration, the record tells us, and the result vindicated his choice of a theme. On the last Sunday of his stay, he preached to between thirty and forty thousand people, whilst over three thousand participated in the closing communion. Here he is in the Countess of Huntingdon's drawing-room. The sumptuous apartment is thronged by princes and peers, philosophers and poets, wits and statesmen. To this select and aristocratic assembly, he twice or thrice every week delivers his message. Ye must be born again, he says, and he implores his titled hearers to seek the regenerating grace that can alone bring the joy of heaven into the experiences of earth. Here he is, bending over his desk. He is writing to Benjamin Franklin, the man who wrenched the scepter from tyrants and the lightning from heaven. I find, he says, that you grow more and more famous in the learned world. As you have made such progress in investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will richly repay you for your pains. I could change the scene indefinitely, but in every country, and under every condition, he is always expatiating on one tremendous theme. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot help it. When at Oxford he first discovered the necessity and experienced the power of the new birth, he could speak of nothing else. Whenever a fellow student entered my room, he says, I discussed with him our Lord's words about being born again. For thirty years he preached night and day on the theme that had torn the shackles from his own soul. Towards the close of his Life of George Whitfield, Mr. J. P. Gladstone gives a list of the eminent preachers, poets, and philanthropists who, together with countless thousands of less famous men, were led into the kingdom and service of Christ as a result of Mr. Whitfield's extraordinary ministry. He often said that he should like to die in the pulpit, or immediately after leaving it, and he almost had his wish. He preached the day before he died, and he remained true to his own distinctive message to the last. I am now fifty-five years of age, he said in one of these final addresses, and I tell you that I am more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation from God himself, and that without it you can never be saved by Jesus Christ. Why, Mr. Whitfield, inquired a friend one day, why do you so often preach on ye must be born again? Because, replied Mr. Whitfield, solemnly, looking full into the face of his questioner, because ye must be born again. That is conclusive. It leaves nothing more to be said. 
End of chapter 4